Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And a super quick shout out to Patreon supporters Carly and Andrea. 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 Yep. Thank you so much. <laughs> and for our first 50 Patreon subscribers, we've been getting the notifications that you're receiving our, your special thank you gifts, and we really hope Woo-hoo. you like them. Yes. And if you've gotten yours and you feel inclined to share it on social media, please do. And be sure to tag us so we can see it and be very excited about it. And if you've not gotten yours, if you've not gotten yours, I probably know about it because I turned on USPS delivery notifications for all of them. So, oh, no. Uh, but thank you. Thank you so much to everyone who has joined since we hit 50 Patreon subscribers. So we'll have to do another round of these surprises when we hit 100. But speaking of gifts. For this, our last episode of 2020, we've got a wonderful guest to bring you. Yeah. So joining us today is Dr. Chris Stantis, a researcher most recently affiliated with Bournemouth University. She uses stable isotope analysis of archaeological remains to understand how people lived in the past. Uh, So stable isotopes can give give us some direct insights into how people ate, where they came from, and what their environment was like. These are all valuable pieces of information for understanding past cultures. And finally, we have someone to explain them to us. So most recently, Chris has been working on a multinational research project titled The Enigma of the Hyksos, which focuses on the Hyksos dynasty during the second intermediate period in Egypt. So that's right. Merry Hicksmas, everybody. And thanks so much for being on the show, Chris. I'm super happy to be here. I can't wait to tell you guys all about the Hyksos. Ah, yay. We can't either. But first, you have to tell us about some other things. (laughs) (laughs) You got to talk about yourself a little bit first. Oh, that would be great if we just brought you in and we were just like, shut up. We don't want to hear your life story. (laughs) Shut up about the Hyksos. Oh, oh, no. Tell me about you. Yeah. So, um, hopefully I can, I could phrase that more gently. Um, so you have, so you have a career that's taken you lots of places through many projects, um, in a good way. Um, so how did you get started and how did you get to where you are now? So when I was like a little kid, I wanted to be every type of scientist there was like, you know, everyone goes through like the phases and like, I wanted to be a mineralogist. I wanted to be an astrobiologist studying life in outer space. Um, but I never wanted to be an archeologist oddly enough <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> I'm like, what? Didn't hit that That's one. ridiculous. Well, and you know what I think part of it was, was I never had a huge interest in history because of the way some people teach history, mm-hmm. it's all about like kings and battles mm-hmm. and wars and presidents. And I'm like, who cares about that? Like, I didn't realize archaeology was actually about the people, like everyone in the past, not just like 
these big names in history. And like, I mean, if you love military history and like military archaeology, that's great. But it just wasn't an interest for me. Um, so I actually started my undergrad as a zoologist, um, getting a zoology huh. degree. Yeah. And but like along the way, I realized that humans are my favorite species to study. We're just so interesting and weird. And there's so much variation to to examine within us. And so I really liked studying humans as a species. And so I became drawn to biological anthropology. So studying humans as a species mm -hmm. from a biological perspective. And then I realized you can sort of apply these concepts in the past using bioarchaeology by studying human remains um, in archaeological contexts. And so I switched majors uh, and just never looked back. So I went on, um, I ended up doing my master's up in Durham University in bioarchaeology. Uh, that's where I first started to learn about stable isotopes analysis from um, Professor Janet Montgomery up there. She does a ton of stable isotopes analysis. Uh, and she was kind enough to give me a project studying people who had died during the Black Death in 1348. So these are people who had all died within one year and were sort of thrown into a plague pit in London. And it was just this amazing site. Uh, it's called a catastrophic cemetery when sort of everyone oh is interred at the same time. Yeah. Um, versus that's an, an evocative term, right? So you have a catastrophic cemetery, like a plague pit or like battlefield pits. And then you have attritional cemeteries, which is more your, you know, down by the church kind of cemetery where people are buried over time, sometimes hundreds, possibly even thousands of years. But these are people who had all died at once. And so it was really interesting to do some isotopic analyses to study who these people were in the past, what sort of environment they lived in. I ended up then going to New Zealand to do my PhD because New Zealand is amazing and beautiful and I wanted to go. And this seemed like a good <laughs> opportunity. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so I went there and the supervisor there, Professor Hallie Buckley was nice enough. Um, she had a project idea where I could study some human remains from Tonga and Fiji. Um, these were cemeteries that had been excavated in the past and then moved with the community's permission to New Zealand. And we were sort of given free reign to think about diet and mobility in the past and how, especially within these sites, think about how social status affected things like access to what types of foods people get to eat, whether or not people get to move as easily. And that's sort of been what my career is turning out to be is it's not a time period or region that interests me as much as these kind of broad questions that stable isotopes can answer. So now, as you said, I'm on this um, multinational research project known as the Hyksos Enigma or the Enigma of the Hyksos. 
studying ancient Egypt and the ancient Near East about 3,500 years ago during the Middle Bronze Age. That's very cool um, and exciting. All of those places sound great. All of those projects sound great. Yeah. Can I ask a tiny follow-up question? Of course. Um, like for, for clarity. So when you're talking about studying populations and looking at um, like how you can get a lens into um, who had access to certain foods and who had access to like movement and moving, um, how mm -hmm. much movement, how, how fine a um, scale can you see that on? Like, can you see that from moving from like this side of the mountain to that side of the mountain? Or is it sort of like from like one region to another? Like how, how specific can you get in that research? Yeah, so stable isotopes, whenever it comes to analyzing different types of stable isotopes for mobility, you're never going to get like a postcode of where a person okay. came from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's a lot of hope for some researchers. Usually what stable isotopes is really good at telling you is where a person isn't from. Mm. All right. So it's almost like this like Holmesian like deduction sort of thing where you can identify most easily and most confidently people who are non-locals. Okay. You can people find outliers. Yeah. So you can identify the people who don't resemble like the local like regions, isotopic values. And so then you can identify that they're non-locals, that they are people who have migrated at some point into this region and then were buried, you know, within these cemeteries. It's not always as easy to figure out where they came from. Mm, okay. Thank you. So that can be quite hard. Sometimes, yeah, no problem. Sometimes depending on the environment and the geology, you can start to make some really educated guesses. But okay. it's not always that easy. It depends on where in the world you are. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Well, this is great because now I can just hop on my segue <laughs> and ask this next question because I saw that you tweeted fairly recently that, so I think a publisher had asked you if you would be interested in writing a book that would make people fall in love with isotopes. And so... What are stable isotopes? How do archaeologists use them? And can you convince us to love them? So that book chapter is going <laughs> terribly because oh, no. I'm a terrible writer. No, no. no. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Luckily, I'm much better at convincing people to love isotopes when I'm just chatting with you. Okay. So let's get into it. Oh, great. You can so, listen back to this and just jot everything yeah, down. Just transcribe it. Just just yeah. write it all down. Transcribe it. Transcribe the ums. Transcribe yeah. the occasional cursing. It's mm -hmm, fine. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> readers will be like, oh, she's so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> for what are isotopes? If we go back to some like high school level chemistry for just oh, a no, second. Please. Oh, no, yep. <laughs> Quell down that panic. <laughs> isotopes are variations of elements based on the number of neutrons so you might remember that atoms are composed of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Yes. And good job. If you change the number of protons in an atom, you change what the element is completely. Like if you add a proton to hydrogen, it becomes helium. If you take a proton from calcium, it's going to become potassium. And if you start messing with electrons, you actually change the atom's role in processes like electricity, magnetism, thermal conductivity. All right. 
Now, neutrons changes how the atoms and the molecules made from these atoms act during physical reactions. Physical reactions are processes like freezing and evaporation and dissolving. And we don't need to get like super into it, but basically because of that, you're going to get different amounts of different types of isotopes. So you're going to get isotopic ratios. Uh, depending on um, how these different isotopes react differently in different settings. Now, once scientists realized that, we also realized that measuring the proportions of the heavier and lighter isotopes within material that used to be alive get, gives us clues about the types of environments these living beings were in. It's stable isotopes that are especially exciting to me. So there's two different types of isotopes, radioactive isotopes, which you've probably heard of, they're super useful for like carbon-14 dating. Mm -hmm. Stable isotopes are atoms that aren't going to radioactively decay over time. And so when you examine pieces of bones and teeth, whenever you isotopically analyze this material from the archaeological record, the stable isotopes values should be the same as when the animal was alive, barring problems with contamination. Okay. And so... Archaeologists like myself will generally use isotopic analysis to answer three broad types of themes, okay? Diet, mobility, and climate. Mm, okay. So it's easy to remember DMC if you love hip hop. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> Q forced Q forced laughter. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that was real. That was real. <laughs> Have you heard the jokes on this show? That was great. <laughs> this is this is gold. Um, and so, so I have a lot of reasons to love isotopes. And like, if you're interested in biological anthropology, there's a lot of subdisciplines that make use of isotopes to place animals within their environment. Uh, of course, bioarchaeology, the study of human remains in archaeological contexts. Also, zooarchaeology, if you're more interested in placing animals within their ancient environments, but maybe you're a modern primatologist and you also can use isotopic analysis from pieces of um, living like apes and monkeys, not, not bones and teeth, that would be mean, but you can take like pieces of fur <laughs> or even poop and you can find out like what the monkey is eating and where it's been moving around. And so that's really cool. Forensic yeah. anthropologists will also make use of isotopes, especially the mobility isotopes, um, especially in instances where DNA analysis isn't providing huge clues and sort of regions need to start being narrowed down to continue investigation. Mm -hmm. Forensic anthropologists have made good use of isotopes. So there's a lot of reason for biological anthropologists to love isotopes. And I also find that there's multiple ways of approaching isotopes, right? So like, I'm quite a quantitative person. I like numbers, which is how the ratios, how the data comes out is just a whole bunch of numbers. And I love that. I love Oof. doing statistics. I Bless know. you for that. I love making <laughs> scatter plots. Yeah. Everybody has their own thing, right? Yeah. I mm. love that for you. <laughs> You're so happy for me. <laughs> 
Um, but maybe you're more of a hands-on person who loves that day-to-day chemistry. You love working at the bench, doing all of the cool, like I get to work with test tubes and Erlenmeyer flasks and lots of acid, lots of different <laughs> bone-eating acid. Watch out for the acid. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like people love that. And like the instrumentation <laughs> Because you have to understand, like, so we're measuring these ratios of isotopes in something known as a mass spectrometer. And sometimes I have to step back and be like, how cool is this machine? Because it is literally counting the number of atoms for you of different weights. It sorts the atoms by weight and then it counts them for you. And that is intense. That is Star Trek level cool. (laughs) And it's a complicated machine though. And people love fiddling with that instrumentation. So if you're a hands-on kind of person, that's another way you can really love isotopes. And that means you can contribute to really cool questions about improving the methodology that we use. Maybe you're less into the quantitative stuff, but you love biology and you just love thinking about all the ways that our isotopic values change depending on the environment we live in. Maybe you like thinking about the metabolic processes that go into um, changing these ratios within our very bodies. I do. And what? Maybe do you like thinking of, about that? What? Right? Yeah, I, I so don't not like thinking like, about that. I just never had the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> it gets so complex when you start thinking about the biology of things, because like the difference in the carbon atoms between um, different types of plants, different species of plants, depends on like how they respirate and yep. how they photosynthesize and you are what where you they are. Right. And like oh the plants can have different values depending <laughs> on whether they're up in the canopy or down below on the ground getting covered or whether they're out in the open savanna. And Amber's so just having a quiet freak out over there. <laughs> I put my I, I right? my cameras off, but I just like put my hood up. I'm just like, <laughs> no. <laughs> there are so many variables and it's so fun to be like, isotopes are really simple. You are what you eat. Like it's just numbers, but they're also really complex oh because there's so <laughs> many... <laughs> Um, (laughs) processes going into it and it's great and like you don't have to have all the answers but we certainly Uh try and like just remember at the end of the day though like I mean as if you're an anthropologist there's all of these types of cultural questions maybe you're like I hate numbers I hate accidentally squirting myself with acid all the time I don't want to think about plants but you do want to ask questions about I want to ask questions Who is eating what type of food? Who has access to these different types of food? Is what you eat changing over the course of your life? And what does that do in terms of your nutrition and your morbidity and mortality even? Oh my God. So, right? So there's a lot of ways to love isotopes. Well, I'm sold. (laughs) Yeah, I'm convinced. (laughs) Caught another one. (laughs) Yes, I will subscribe to your isotope multi-level marketing scheme. I need you to pick one of the subclasses and just be that kind of expert for me. I've already chosen quantitative. So if you can be like... I want to ask questions. Okay. Okay. This isn't me trying to get the the interview to keep going. This is like, 
I'm signing up for questions. <laughs> Shut up, Anna. I don't want to ask questions. <laughs> Looks like okay, you're well, squirting acid all over the place. That's actually ideal for me. So that works. Um, it's, it's really satisfying. And only some of it is incredibly bone eating. Some of it is only mildly bone eating. Like, but it's is fine. it flesh eating? Like, if you don't yeah, get that's it fine. My bones, bones are covered. Is, yeah. <laughs> So you think your bones are covered, but look up hydrofluoric acid sometime. Um, I won't show you the images. Will it it uncover my bones? It goes straight for the calcium in your body. What? And yeah, it's... I have so much calcium in there. Oh no. I eat a lot of cheese. so much calcium. (laughs) Running out of ways to like cover myself. <laughs> you want to go that's, get a blanket real quick? Policy in a lab. <laughs> it's true. That's why you wear closed-toed shoes, everyone. Huh. Um, the safety announcement brought to you by hydrofluoric acid. <laughs> Whoa! While we um, think about that for a minute, Anna's going to give me a break to go put on more layers. <laughs> yeah, Amber's going to go put on more layers. We're going to have a quick ad break, and then we'll be right back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Well, we're back and I've got my Thunder shirt on. So, <laughs> next up. <laughs> so, uh, Chris. It is common for our guests to end up working in places or in populations, uh, among populations, very far from where they started out in their careers. Um, So have you developed any strategies in in your time uh, for approaching a new project or joining a new team? Teach us how to talk to people. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I guess like I can explain, like I, I want, I wanted to ask this question particularly because, um, when we've talked before about sort of where you've worked and sort of how you kind of bopped around, like it makes sense. Like there's like a, a trajectory and an arc, but I would imagine that if you're sort of looking at like going to a new place, looking at a new population and being like, well, I've got my lane. I know what I know, but there's all this other stuff that comes along with it. And like, how do you like overcome that fear? (laughs) And just sort of like all the things you don't know to which your knowledge is a compliment. It's definitely a work in progress in terms of this, but I am becoming more comfortable with what I don't know. 
and as you said, what I actually bring to the team. So when I joined the Hyksos team, everyone else on this team, which was about a dozen people, were either experts in Egypt or the Near East. And then I showed up and I'm like, (laughs) hey, y'all, I don't know either. (laughs) Ask me questions about Tonga. And like, we just had to be okay okay with that. (laughs) They're like, no, thank you. (laughs) We don't, we don't want to. But they were super nice because, you know, just saying what you don't know rather than doubling down is just going to save so much time in the end of it. And Mm -hmm. instead, I had all of these wonderful colleagues who were ready to bring their knowledge whenever I had silly questions or I didn't know where to start researching because that takes time. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And so I know a lot more now about these regions during the Middle Bronze Age. I can actually find there was a lot going on then. So (laughs) there was so much going on. You really picked the right the right time to, to not know things like that's because <laughs> there's so much to not know there is so much to not know and there's it's still nearly a lot infinite i don't know yeah but it's it's an amazing place to study and so yeah. i've really enjoyed my time here um hanging out with the team who are um like some of us are also bioarchaeologists in their own right but are also Egypt and Near Eastern experts. And so I can kind of like back whenever we could actually share offices, I could just lean over and be like, (sighs) where are the Hurrians? I don't know. (laughs) Where are the Hurrians? And where are they hurrying off to? They're they're dead now. Oh, they're not here. They're not, they're not here. They're in the, the great horse track in the sky. Hurrians were horse guys, Anna. Big horse guys. The Hurrians. Yeah. Just speaking of other populations that begin with an H. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were saying Is that the Jeopardy category? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Populations that begin with an H. Mm-hmm. What are the Hurrians? I'll take that for 200, Anna. Okay. Well, we mentioned the re-examination of the Hyksos population in Egypt, um, actually on an episode of Old News, which is one of the bonus episodes that we do every month for Patreon supporters. So people who just listen to the main feed may not have heard us talk about them. And your research, which we um, touched on in Old News, showed something really interesting about that population. So much like you just taught us all about isotopes, who are the Hyksos? And what do we know about them now that we didn't before? Or oh, maybe God. that we may have had sort of preconceived notions about before. I hope this doesn't wreck me again. <laughs> again. <laughs> well, at least now you have me to go through it. So you're going to be like, oh, this is fine. At least I'll take the blame if we mess this up. And you get people being like, what just happened? Um, just galaxy so brain everywhere. Yay. I'm taking off my bear hat, y'all. Oh, uh, I'm warmed up enough. <laughs> that would make no sense to the podcast listeners. You will have to cut that out. It's an audio medium. <laughs> That's okay. Chris is wearing a very cute hat, except no longer wearing it. There we go. I solved it. I painted a picture with my Done. words. <laughs> you can do that? Which? Um, all right. So, so the term Hyksos is is a Greek derivation of the Egyptian term Hakau Kusut, which means foreign rulers. Wow. And so these were the rulers 
who were the 15th dynasty of ancient Egypt, ruling parts of Egypt between about 1638 to 1530 BCE, depending on your dating system. So you said that's around 3,500 years ago, thereabouts? If my math is right, 1650. (laughs) Yeah. Tune in listeners who can do math. Anna's just fishing for somebody to tell her what year it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's like, so that makes today, uh... (laughs) it's 2020, Anna. As if I could forget. And I'm here like, I'm quantitative. I'm a quantitative person. (laughs) I also can't do basic subtraction. Uh, so, so we know that the Hyksos ruled from the northeastern Nile Delta from their capital, which was called Avaris. And they had ruling names that, so pharaonic names that weren't Egyptian, but from a Semitic language group. So from a language family originating east of Egypt, um, a language group related to like Arabic, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And According to the Egyptians who later wrote about the history of the Hyksos, these rulers were descended from what's known as Amu. Now, now, Amu is an Egyptian word as well that you sometimes see translated as Asiatic. So Amu are people coming from east of Egypt. Okay. And yeah. yeah and I'm, so, like, I'm really like choking on that. So they, they brought with them their mode of production. Big, deep, deep Weber cut there. Faber joke. Anybody got a Faber joke about the Asiatic mode of production? No one. Nice. No, no one. Whoa. (laughs) This is the kind of humor that we strive for on this this show. (laughs) I'm going to Google that and then I'm going to laugh with you. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'll get on that. (laughs) So... So in Atavaris, the Hyksos built a large temple to the storm god, Baal, which was a god worshipped all over the Levant. Yeah, heard of him. Yeah, he's super cool. Lord of two mountains, I think he's sometimes called. Oh. oh. You often see an image of him astride, like one foot on one mountain, one foot on another, like wielding a duck-billed axe, which is like very Near Eastern. <laughs> wielding a duck-billed platypus. But he has a very cool hat that's always like very long. Like it goes down to like his ankles and like often oh. turns up. Yeah. Yeah. Serious fashion game. The axe hat mm. pairing. Mm. So we know that the Hyksos dynasty eventually fell. The 17th dynasty from a base of power to the south and Thebes were inflamed with the idea that Egypt should be for the true Egyptians and not the Amu. Uh, second Ray Tao of the 17th dynasty kings fell in battle against the Hyksos even. Like his body couldn't be recovered for days. And the stories go that his mummy bears evidence of decay before the priests could even attend to him. And so he has like battle wounds still on his like temple from the axe blows of the Hyksos. Whoa. Okay. I don't know how we, I don't know how useful this part is to the story, (laughs) but I always think second Ray Tao is pretty cool. And then his children, Kamosa and Ahmosa, would continue the fight. And it was Ahmosa who eventually drove the Hyksos out of power and unified Egypt once again. He became the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty and ushered in the new kingdom, which was like, that's like the period everybody loves to study. That's the one where you have Ramses and other Ramses. 
and <laughs> tons of cool architecture and tons of writing. Yeah. <laughs> it's also where uh, my knowledge starts to become much more spotty. There's a Ramses and another Ramses. Cool. Maybe a that's, third. Yep, that's fine. This isn't a Ramses podcast. <laughs> no. This is not. This is Mary Hicksmas, everyone. And we are yep. in the Hicksmas spirit. Yes. So the questions about the Hyksos wasn't how they fell from power, because that's like well-documented. The questions have always been, where did the Hyksos come and how did they rise to power? This is where things get really complicated. And as I've been doing this postdoctoral research, I found that you need to study scholarly history. But you do, you need to actually even study the people who studied the Hyksos and the biases that they had and the stories that they came up with. And because this is such a relatively less studied time period than, say, the New Kingdom, people become kind of comfortable with these gaps in knowledge and, like, accept the old stories for truth because there's nothing to replace them. And so you end up, whenever you're sort of searching for the story of the Hyksos, you end up with a lot of, again, stories, narratives that modern scholars know are false, but haven't been able to sort of correct within popular ideas. So you often hear about the Hyksos as like an invading force sweeping across the northeastern Nile Delta. And part of that is because Manetho, who was this Ptolemaic era priest, so this priest who came like centuries later, he's writing about them doing this, sweeping across the northeast Nile Belt, uh, Delta, taking over um, and taking over Egypt. And Josephus, who was like a Roman scholar, didn't question Manetho, and then people didn't question Josephus. That was kind and of so we ended up with this idea. game. Like being like, yeah, sounds good to me. Manetho said it can't be wrong. And then like, there's no way to sort of double check. And like, if we're, if we're super honest with ourselves and a little uncomfortable with past historians and what they thought it, it worked for a lot of people. The idea of um, the Hyksos like depicting like disorder and chaos in Egypt and Western scholars were happy to conflate this idea of these sort of violent people from the Middle East mm-hmm. coming in to to attack Egypt, which was one of the sort of bases for like the Greek um, civilization, which became the basis for Roman civilization, for like the Enlightenment and Renaissance. And so people, some Western scholars didn't want the Egyptians picked on. It was so easy for Western scholars mired in like imperialism and Orientalism to view the Hyksos as this invading force. Yeah. Yeah, it's a narrative we want to see. And there's no, well, not we. It's a narrative. Let's rechange that. It's a narrative that some people wanted to see. And there's no denying the convenience of the timing that during the second intermediate period, you start seeing bronze weaponry and chariots and equids. So like horse type Mm. animals showing up in the Nile when they weren't there beforehand. And suddenly the Hyksos are here. How, you know, if they were a foreign invading force, wouldn't they be bringing bronze weaponry chariots 
you know, right. drawn by equids. Well, well, naturally. But mm. yeah. And as yet, though, there's no archaeological evidence for battles for Hyksos control. Um, right. That is obviously an absence of evidence issue. You know, maybe we just haven't found it yet. But scholars are increasingly thinking that the Hyksos rulers came from Amu, who had been living in Egypt for generations. And so their rise to rule was as a political force, not a combative force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got like the absence of evidence issue, of course, for um, for for any sort of battles. But the Hyksos also used like an existing administrative system in Egypt. Like they understood like the taxation system and oh, things gosh. like that. So like, yeah, who what invading force kind of takes the time to do that and also be firmly planted within this region. Right, like like we're showing up, we're taking over, but also we're going to keep most stuff like... Also, we completely understand how it works. We're going to keep the machine moving, like the the sort of administrative bureaucratic machine of of like this nation, this this political entity, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong, like later you'd have like the Persians, like King Darius was like famous for that, for coming in being like, hey, I rule you now. So just pay a tax and keep yeah. living your life He's however like, you were yeah. living it. Yeah. Like but, um, the Cyrus Cylinder was basically like, you do you. Like, in yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, Hicks, the Hyksos were not like, you do you boo kind of people. Like we weren't there yet in like the Middle Bronze Age. <laughs> so... This is tied to like what I find the harder question, which is where did they come from? So, so you had the Hyksos rulers, the Amu living under them were not Hyksos. They were, they were Amu and also of course other like native Egyptians. That gets a little conflated both because it's easy to say the Hyksos and mean like the whole dynasty, the whole Mm -hmm. system, anybody who benefits. Um, It's, it also becomes a bit difficult because you start seeing some people, as I understand it, post-Hyksos, some Amu, you know, they love the idea that there were Hyksos rulers. And so they start using the word Hyksos a bit more okay. because they're proud of that heritage. So a clue to where the Hyksos came from is tied with their, you know, their Semitic names and their veneration of Baal. And so the Hyksos were clearly proud of like their heritage. So but how long had they been in Egypt before they came in power becomes kind of the question. And then even then, were, were these group of people from a specific place in the ancient Near East before coming over to the Nile Delta, either as first generation like invaders or as people with a proud, do they have a proud heritage from one specific part of the Near East or are they coming from all over? into the Nile Delta, which Avaris before, during the Middle Kingdom, was already like a bustling, like merchant harbor. Mm-hmm. And so were they already kind of navigating their identities and, you know, meeting lots of different types of people at that time, rather than a unified homeland? And so those were sort of the questions that I had when I came onto this project and tried to use isotopic analysis to understand. And lucky for the project, the capital, not, not that I'm here, like you're welcome. <laughs> no, I love that. I'd be like, everyone. <laughs> I am here. I will fix this. <laughs> no. um, 
Luckily for the project, the capital of Avaris has been discovered. It's an archaeological site known as Tel Odaba in the northeastern Nile Delta. Um, it's on this extinct branch of the Nile, the Pelusiac branch, like the branch has since, since silted up, so it's quite dry there now. But again, it used to be this harbor town, and like part of that site included like huge cemeteries over time, both pre what I just kind of called generally like pre Hyksos. So during the Middle Kingdom, like the 12th and 13th dynasty. And then they have Hyksos era tombs as well with people interred. And so I was able to do isotopic analysis to try to think about where these people came from and where these different groups of people over time came from. And I was able to analyze uh, 75 individuals, which was a pretty good, pretty good sample size. It let me do some math, some stats. Yeah. A lot of the animals that were excavated from Telodava, because they had like some dedicated zooarchaeologists, a lot of the animals are still in storehouses in Egypt, now on a military base. So it's become very difficult to access these, ah. which is fine. Back in were like they, I'm, the, I'm really like, this is like the least important aspect of the whole thing. Were they in the storehouse before it was a military base or did they get like seized by the military? Are these assets? Are these it animals? Was a, my understanding, no, they're not like evidence. My <laughs> understanding is the site, the location of the site is now a military base. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like nefarious <laughs> equid bones needed to be locked up. Um, it's just they're now on a military base. There's a lot of red tape. That's okay. fine. Back in like the 70s, one of the zooarchaeologists was like, hey, can I take a couple of these animal bones back to Munich? Because they're like interesting animals I've never seen before. And they're like, okay. And Horses? so- no. So here's the thing, right? Oh She's like, God. horses, schmorses. I've seen them before. No. She took home gerbils. Oh, that's not what I was expecting. Nope. They rode gerbils? And mice. Makes us <laughs> riding gerbils into battle. No. So, like, you have something known as bioturbation, where, like, an animal will, like, burrow or roots will burrow into the ground. And then the that sort of living remains will get deposited deep in archaeological deposits and so like gerbils a species of mouse known as a cairo spiny mouse super adorable look oh. it up um they had dug into the archaeological site and died there and she's like oh cool mouse and she had never seen them before and yes, so she wanted to do what so archaeologists do which is take them back as a reference and so she did that. They were in the Munich um, like state museum. And I'm like, I need Teloldaba animal bones to build what's known as like a local baseline to understand what a local person should look like. Do you have equids? Do you have like donkeys? Do you have dogs or pigs? And they're like, we have gerbils. And I'm like, let's do this. So the... So, so the, the so the isotopes in in this incredibly cute mouse that I'm looking at right now in, <laughs> in his little bones the, those isotopes would be the same as 
My Little Bones if I were living there at the same time as that guy? Do I understand that correctly? You're making the base. Yeah, yeah, by and large. But so the so yeah, like so when you talk about a baseline, you don't need other people for the baseline. You just need other like living like animal, like you need beings that like lived during that time in the same environment and took that environment and put it in their bones. <laughs> That's exactly right for one type of isotopic analysis known as strontium isotope analysis. Okay. Okay. Technically, one of the isotopes is radiogenic, which means it descends from a radioactive isotope, but is now stable. And so it's still technically stable isotopes, but some people like to call it strontium radiogenic isotopes. But Mm -hmm. I find that like too much to remember. (laughs) So I call it all isotopes and I'm sorry for any isotopic (laughs) pedants out there. You'll you'll learn to live with me. (laughs) But... So yeah, so for strontium, um, your main intake is like the food that you eat, which is mostly reflecting the underlying geology. Right. So anything eating, like any sort of food and drinking like water from that region, from that area, should reflect the same stable isotope value in terms of strontium ratios. Because, you know, I talked about how you can like really love biology because biology changes a ton of things about isotopic values. Luckily your biology doesn't change much with strontium. So, so the isotopic values of like the plants you eat, the strontium values of like the plants you eat, the cute little Cairo spiny mouse of the person who lived there the whole time, they're all going to have the same strontium isotope values. And it's good to use local animals who don't move around too much because you know, you don't know if a human has been moving around a ton. You right. don't necessarily know if that equid, which equids at this time were incredibly highly valued animals that would have been used in like elite trade networks to sort of secure, um, you know, ruling class relationships. And so like equids could be from anywhere. Okay. But gerbils. no one's importing gerbils <laughs> in the Middle Bronze Age. I can't believe I have to say this sentence. I hope I'm proven wrong in the future because that would be an amazing paper. <laughs> but yeah, so I use this animal baseline to determine what the local site of, of a virus would have looked like. And anybody outside of that range is a non-local. It's quite easy. It's very binary. If you're within that value range, you're a local. If you're outside, you're a non-local. And I was really surprised to find that more than half of all the people I analyzed had spent their childhood outside of the Nile Delta. 53% of the people had spent their lives outside. They were non-locals. It was huge. Um, Way bigger than anything I had ever seen before. Yeah. Like imagine a city where 53% of people didn't grow up there. I mean, that's probably like New York City, right? It's like San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, Silicon Valley. Um, (laughs) And then what also ended up surprising me was when I compared pre-Hyksos and Hyksos individuals. So in terms of the Hyksos time period. Right. I found more immigrants during the pre-Hyksos time periods. Right. So more people were moving into Avaris before it was even Avaris, the capital of the Hyksos. People were coming into this cool harbor town. What I also ended up finding, which was super cool, was more 
females were non-locals compared to males. Hmm. So four hmm. people where we could estimate their biological sex, most of the women were non-locals coming in. And so huh. this interesting information told me like a couple of things. Like, first of all, huge amount of non-locals in general. Like this was a harbor town that was super well-connected. The wide range of strontium values as well, because there wasn't like a local clump and then a non-local clump. The people who were non-local had this huge range of strontium values, which suggests that they're not coming from one place. They're coming right, right. from all over the place. I like how you guys did that in tandem. <laughs> um, we have one you can brain. Be my Greek chorus. <laughs> um, and if people are coming in mostly before the Hyksos period, that kind of suggests to me that this isn't like an invading force. These are yeah. people coming in early on. And like in the Middle Kingdom during the 12th dynasty, there's actually like written text about how the Pharaoh is trying to get more Amu into Egypt because the Amu were renowned as like seafarers, which at this mm. point, that's a huge technical skill. That's like being a DevOps, like, like cloud-based networker at this point. Yeah, exactly. Just coders, get these coders, these Amu coders in. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then you also had more women coming in. And that to me does not really lend credence to an invading force of so this people. Is like the this is a very like neoliberal, like more women, ship captains. I clapped between each word. I don't know if you heard it. It's that they're just like yes. each time. <laughs> But it also then suggests that, like, women are like, I mean, you never know how much agency women get to have in the past, but women are like, it's pretty cool here. Let's go check this place out. Let's get married and move to this new place and live our yeah. lives. Um, yeah, not well, like, I guess having this would imply like families also, not sort of like work, not necessarily, but like you you would have like a growing population because of like exactly descended from that's it's not just like women yeah. yeah it's it's not just like people like people coming and doing a job but having their their like roots somewhere else and just like happening, exactly. happening, happening to die there rather than like <laughs> living lives and like producing children there that's what I'm saying. Exactly. And a lot of the tombs that I examined, not all of them, but a lot of them are of the elites. Those were the cemeteries that were found during excavations mm -hmm. were these sort of constructed tombs, like filled with Near Eastern, like cool artifacts. Hmm. So whether they're sort of like middle kingdom, like first generation immigrants or late generation people who are, who have maybe been in Egypt for a while, but are maintaining trade networks to the Near East, maybe family ties, maybe they just have gotten hella rich. And so they can afford to bring in all of these cool imports and be buried with them. I love this. So, <laughs> right. And so it's, it was, it's such it a, was so it's a much cool. more interesting story than just like invading force came in, took power. Eh. 
Yeah. Right. Unless I want to go like off my rocker and be like, it's all of these foreign women coming in (laughs) in the middle kingdom as like Amazons, which is not the conspiracy theory I'm ready to die on. (laughs) (laughs) Gerbils. Alien women writing gerbils. Yes. (laughs) I'd watch that. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, um, so I think that, I think that a lot of what we've discussed in the past several minutes, um, there are hints of, of this, but, um, to really like call it out, you wrote a recent blog post on quote, the foreigner as scapegoat lessons from ancient Egypt and today end quote. So, um, if you will indulge us and give us a little bit of a TLDR for our listeners. Um, what are some of those lessons? And um, <laughs> have we learned them? Or, more philosophical, is history truly cyclical? Yeah, so I wanted to write this blog piece, um, not quite as a companion piece to my academic writing. Mm-hmm. You don't need to read my academic writing if you don't want to. I wanted to write this as a way to introduce the Hyksos to general audiences, but also have a space to write about what I was thinking and feeling when I was reading about the Hyksos. Because with the Hyksos, it just became so clear that the winners get to write history the way that they want to. The Hyksos became like the bad guys within this Egyptian narrative. And it was continued because people were happy for that to happen. Mm. I saw that ancient Egypt had these very clear definitions of good foreigners and bad foreigners. So if you're in the Hyksos, we're obviously incredibly bad foreigners. (laughs) But it sounds like, yeah. My understanding was that if you were to ask an Egyptian, they're the worst. The worst foreigners. They're pretty much the worst foreigners. I mean, the Hyksos were so sort of reviled, they were actually left out of the king's lists in later history. So there are these lists written in hieroglyphs that are just like literally the list of kings going back from your current king right now mm-hmm. all the way back to the to the beginning of time to when the gods ruled Egypt. So the Hyksos are often erased from those king's lists because they're so bad to the Egyptians. So not necessarily that like they did bad things or like were like bad rulers or cruel or anything like that. It's more like identity-based, not performance-based. I would say so, judging from the way that they are so often treated. Okay. Within it, it's more just how dare foreigners think to rule the center of the world okay they're so it's not, not good like enough for this there were, we had a few a few clunkers and we're just gonna glaze over them kind of thing <laughs> yeah it's okay yeah usually whenever you see people erased from the king's lists it's because whoever is writing the king's lists felt that these past pharaohs didn't fit within the sort of morality Mm. and perceived identity of what a good Egyptian was. And so, okay. like, Amenhotet. Brought about the Amarna period, and yeah, monotheism is the way to go. Exactly, yeah. So Amenhotep I and all of those, the Amarna rulers are often struck from the lists because okay. they dared to only That's worship one god. embarrassing. 
embarrassing. Hatshepsut is often left off of the lists mm-hmm. because she dared to be a woman. A woman in our <laughs> Egypt? So yeah, so the Hyksos are often left off. And so foreigners become these representations of like external threats. And at the same time, the cause of all things wrong within a society. Oh, man. And that just... <laughs> because they're so both like, saying, like, they're both, like, here and not here. Like, they're... They are both outside, ready to invade, and within, daring to yeah. take our jobs. Yeah. They, yep. And they've infiltrated. Oh, yeah. This is a real yeah, bummer. <laughs> not in a good way. Yeah, right? And, like, so reading about the Hyksos was just becoming such a big bummer sometimes so like sometimes the fact that these like biases and feelings about migration as tales as old as time sometimes it would grant some solace for me and that like scientific research can help us revise our understanding of events in the past and like yeah challenge these narratives but sometimes it just felt like there was no end to bigotry based on where someone is from (sighs) well i'm talking to you right now from great britain And I'm a skilled migrant who's allowed in this country because of the value that I bring. But I have to follow their prescribed rules to be something even more model than a model citizen, which includes paying fines in like the thousands for the visa, for the privilege of working in this environment. And so I researched the Hyksos and I kind of do wonder how stories like mine will be transformed with time. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting to think about and... I mean, kind of depressing, but what you said about being able to revise stories and give them nuance is, I think, one of the reasons why Amber and I both love archaeology so mm-hmm. much, because it, it gives people back their voices. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it yeah it gives people back their voices, but it also can give other people voices like in the, in the present. Like it yeah. can help you comprehend things around you today by being able to just explore and better understand like the complexity of um human experience and and social forces and (laughs) and identities and things yeah Uh, but for our listeners we will have that blog post in the show notes yes episode perhaps as well as some of chris's academic work Uh, yeah Whoa. Anything you want you to link us to, we pick. will be happy to put up. <laughs> well, speaking of things you've done and things you will go on to do, let's, since it's coming up onto a new year, would you like to manifest some things? Do you have a, a dream archaeological project or just a dream project for that matter that you'd like to be a part of? So admittedly, my dream right now is just to have something consistent where I'm not having to move every few years or take yeah, that'd be great. long pauses between paychecks while putting in oh, job boy. applications. Absolutely. <laughs> I ask too much from academia, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I love my research and I love bioarchaeology and I love isotopic analysis and so I'd like to keep doing that and like in some ways if I just keep flitting between cultures and time periods as long as people will let me as long as there's colleagues who are willing to help me learn a new region and communities who have questions about their past that would be wonderful but I would love for it to mean that I don't have to move all the time (laughs) I I sincerely hope that that happens for you very soon. Yeah. Someday. Gosh, just what a humble dream. 
(laughs) that's that's where we're at in our generation and i'd love that and our economy stability just Mm -hmm. a dream of project (laughs) (laughs) contentment well uh, um reflecting before i um, bust into that song from my fair lady oh, oh yes oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, so uh while we're reflecting on all the projects that you are grateful to have had <laughs> and continue <laughs> to have um would you be willing to share with us what is the strangest or funniest archaeological experience you've ever had because i know you've had many experiences at least i don't know how many of them are strange or funny I've had a lot. I, luckily, I sometimes I have to anonymize them for reasons. And so this one will be lightly anonymized. Ah, yes. Luckily, it doesn't involve too many collaborators. Um, so so a lot of what I what I do, especially on this project, has been work in laboratories and museums, not so much work in the field where people often picture archaeologists. You don't you don't go out there and, with your, your bench and your acid and just roll up on it just give me that bone yeah that just bone to me. pour acid <laughs> over everything <laughs> like a misty beam in the field <laughs> <laughs> if mass specs could get down to like microwave sized and i'm just like touting one around like oh here we go yes. no problem boop, 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 boop. pushing a little cart through the the sand i'll get yep. there <laughs> isotopes get your isotopes now i'm thinking of like a a trolley on like a train yes oh yes people people hand me bones i like boop it in the little mass spec microwave give them data keep where that bone's from mass spectrometry sir (laughs) ma'am would you like a mass spectrometry (laughs) but yeah so usually i'm in the museum and i don't have a trolley as of yet and so I was in this museum where I was asked to look at a, at a collection of human remains. And I went and I examined the collection and took samples with their permission. And then, you know, we still had some time left over. And the curator, this was a very small museum. And they're like, oh, we don't have like osteologists come by, like people familiar with human bones. Would you actually like to just have a quick look at some of our other stuff and tell me what you think? And we're like, of course. And I don't use the royal we. There was another person with me. <laughs> was a, a little a spiny mouse in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I would just pull out the gerbil and be like, what do you think, boo? And like, move on. Um, so I, we're like, yeah, no problem. And so we had looked at some collections where the curator was like, you know, based on the skull, do you think it's like a male or a female? How old? And we're like, giving them some estimations for that, no problem. And they're like, oh, hey, do you want to see our human sacrifice? And what? Yeah, we're like, excuse. (laughs) Yeah, and that sort of thing where you're like excited, intrigued, confused. Yeah. I'm hoping it's not an active crime scene. Scheduled, it's it's coming (laughs) up in an hour. Like it's... (laughs) The curator looks at his watch like, oh, I'm supposed to throw myself in a volcano at two. So do you want to come with? (laughs) Is it volcano o'clock already? Ah, time flies. So so we pulled out this um, exhibit that hadn't actually been on the floor since what seemed like the 70s. Right? Glass case. 
an amazing like card with like ridiculous old timey font. I mean, 1970s font. It's not that crazy, but you know. It's brown. (laughs) It was. um, (laughs) That like proto Times New Roman kind of ugliness. And it's like human sacrifice. People were sometimes sacrificed in the past to like ensure bountiful harvests like this child. And we're like, oh. (laughs) And we look and there's this sort of stone carved shallow bowl and then in the middle are just all of these bones and we're like oh that's someone's dinner there was chicken and pig it wasn't a (laughs) sacrifice at all or at least not a human one it was a stew what? <laughs> so basically they had something that they hadn't run by a zooarchaeologist first. They definitely first. hadn't had osteologists come by, had they? Yeah. No. Nope. They really needed an osteologist. We're like kind You're of like, open that's through. Not, like, that's not person. And, and like, I have to admit, as like someone who specializes in human remains, I'm always amazed at zooarchaeologists because they seem to know like every species and can identify every species. They're like, that's not a mouse, that's a gerbil. And I'm sitting here, like, poking through these bones, like, not human, not human, not human. That's about my level, and I am a zooarchaeologist. (laughs) Oh, no. I've got this, it's like local versus non-local for strontium. I also have this binary of human. Human and not human. Not human. Yep. But this was not a human sacrifice team. This was someone's lunch. Oh, Oh, well, that's That's a nice ending. Yeah, it's nice. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, this is better than the time I broke into the back of a museum. So we'll keep that for the next yep. episode. Oh. Yep, that's a Dirt After Dark story. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Stay tuned and subscribe via their Patreon if you want to hear how Chris is banned from this one city. Yes. I'm, I'm not banned. <laughs> they don't know. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I only succeed at break-ins, guys. I am successful at what I do. All right, well, um, before Mission Impossible sues us for using their theme song, I guess, we're going to take one more quick (laughs) ad break, and then we'll be back with our final two questions for Chris. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Well, these last two questions are ones that we ask every guest on the show. So it's always fun to see how everyone's answers compare. So 
Chris, it's your turn. What is the best or your favorite thing? They don't have to be the same about anthropology. So I think my favorite thing about anthropology and what always gets me excited when I think about like your anthro 101 kind of classes, like introducing people to anthropology for the first time is just the diversity of the questions that we ask, the diversity of the people who ask them is just something that I love so much. No matter what your strength is, no matter what your passion is, if it's about humans or our relatives today or in the past, or you're trying to build a better future, like anthropology can use you and can use your passion to sort of address these questions. And so I know, but I love it. I do really love it. I love getting excited talking to anthropologists about the work they do and the different stories that they came from. It's why I love your podcast. Oh, is love our podcast. <laughs> but I mean, like, again, like I came at this from a very biological standpoint and I love the quantitative stuff, but I know people who have chemistry backgrounds or cool computer modeling backgrounds, or they've just basically grown up outdoors their whole life and they're ready to tromp through rainforests trying to save gibbons. And that's all so cool. We are a cool group of people and anybody listening should join us. We yes. make no money <laughs> from you joining. We don't have a subscriber kind nope. of system. Oh, it's like we make no money in general. I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Also, you will make no money. Welcome to the club. <laughs> it's really fun. You just don't make money. Oh, yeah. It's, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real paycheck is the friends we make along the way. And then our final question. <laughs> If you could be a fly on the wall for any moment from history, prehistory, or the history of anthropology itself, what would you choose and why? It's a tough one. That is such a tough one because obviously there's so many like defining moments in like history and prehistory. And yeah. so I'm sure lots of people choose some of those really cool like first fire, first like building of a building in like Chattel Hayuk or something. Mm -hmm. There's tons mm -hmm. of cool ones to do. I think what I would want to do, because you mentioned the history of anthropology itself, and that got me thinking. And I'm yes. like, I would yes. like to sit in on a course with like Franz Boas and team just to see mm. what they mm -hmm. were doing. What is up with them? Because they obviously like really defined American anthropology. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to see it happen. Yeah. Yeah. That would be super interesting. Before we let you go, um, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? The only thing I can think of is if anybody has any questions or comments or I just completely messed up any part of ancient Egyptian history and you can't wait to tell me, <laughs> you are welcome nice. to follow me on Twitter at Chris Stantis. Great. Yeah. And we'll link to, or at least we'll have that information up on our show notes. I don't know if it actually links to your Twitter. Yeah, but yeah. It does. So it, it does, depending on what podcatcher you use. Indeed. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh. because you guys will put links up on your website. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I'll link some of my writing. Um, awesome. For anybody who's interested in the Hyksos, especially the questions about the second intermediate period and how it's like just a really confusing time, both because of the history of like 1800s European scholars kind of messing things up. Um, 
I can put in some links for that too, if people are interested in that time period of history. Oh, that would be awesome. Little places for people to start to go to. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're also really fun to follow on Twitter. Oh, so yeah. highly recommend. I'm hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You're not wrong. Oh gosh. Uh oh, okay, that's me. Sorry. <laughs> I, I scrolled too far on my script. So that's gonna do it for us and for the year. Uh, we did it, everyone. Uh-huh. So thank you so much for joining us for this last episode, Chris. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will be back in your ears in 2021. Remember, like, in elementary school when it's... Yeah, when it was like, see you next year. Ha, ha, ha. So fun. Uh, And we have so much good stuff that we can't wait to share with you in the new year. In the meantime, if you miss us, you can dive into our entire archive of episodes at thedirtpod.com, where we will have this episode posted along with all the show notes. Or you can find all of our episodes from the Archaeology Podcast Network feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you like to listen. Yeah. And don't worry, we'll still be around on social media, but over the hiatus, I might even be on social media. But we will be on social. I know, I know, I know, I know. So catch us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram <laughs> at The Dirt Pod. Um, and you can, you know, go holler at us on Twitter while you're getting over there to follow Chris. At Chris Stantis. Yep, at Chris Stantis. And you can also, on any of those platforms, you can shoot us a question or your thoughts. And you can also write in, or just say hi at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And very sincerely, thank you so much, everyone. Making the show has been one of the best parts of our year. Um, at some points, some of the only good parts <laughs> of the year. <laughs> and so your support and your enthusiasm and your letters, um, all of that. <laughs> has- Delivered by Carrier Pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> have really really helped us through and truly to end to end this year so so thrilled that we were able to sit down with with you chris thank you so much for being here yes thank you thank you thank you for inviting me for your very merry hicksmas yeah a very merry hicksmas one and all and to <laughs> all a good whatever time you're listening night yeah. or <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you well, go to bed now <laughs> yes <laughs> all right thanks for listening everybody we love you goodbye bye this episode was produced by chris webster from his rv traveling america tristan boyle in scotland and the archaeology podcast network this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.